Hey everybody, just a little heads up about today's show and I just wanted to hop on here before we get things going. Jason Cherubini is on the show today. He's a film producer. He's even more than that. He's a business consultant, um, a, a professor, educator. He's done a lot of stuff. Uh, well, I'll let him talk about it on the show today, but I just wanted to hop on here and give a quick shout out to him for coming back on the show. Uh, this episode actually got re-recorded because I was, you know, farting around on Zoom and purging some old records to clear up some space so, you know, I can, you know, keep the show going and record guests. And I recorded, I guess, the original record that me and him did back in the beginning of December. And right when I did that, poof, I saw the file that I had for the audio for this show uh, deleted. And so his episode was purged by accident. So I just want to give a shout out to him for saying yes to coming back and basically coming <laughs> coming back on for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to talk about the same exact stuff we did three, four weeks prior. It was really cool. So like I said, when we were not recording, Jason, next time you're in Tampa, uh, if you want me to buy you a coffee or something, let me know. And uh, just also a side note, there were a couple audio hiccups. Uh, I don't know if it was on my end or on his end, but I was able to manage and make it look somewhat clean. And, you know, if you didn't think I made it look clean, well, I don't know what you want from me. But anyway, enjoy the show. This is a really insightful episode if you are an independent filmmaker trying to raise some funds, get some films out in the world on a more legitimate business level. Uh, they don't teach filmmakers film business and film school. So for the next 50 so odd minutes, uh, you do get a bit of a lesson here from someone, from a pro, from a guy who is like a strictly numbers guy when it comes to filmmaking. And so with that being said, here's the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the basement. All right, everybody, welcome to the basement. I have quite a challenge here today because I usually have a lot of directors, a lot of actors. I don't know, a lot of, you know, I don't have a lot of producers or like numbers guys here. So we're going to talk some film business on the show. And I got Jason Cherubini, producer over at Dawn's Light Media on the show today. Jason, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So you're... You're a film. I mean, you're a lot of things. You're an educator, business. I got a list here. Educator, business consultant, film producer. You're a college professor, entrepreneur. Uh, how do you juggle all these talents? Uh, it's career ADHD. Um, get bored and jump around a little bit. But almost all of it is around the finance and accounting side, that very operational function across the different businesses. So even though it may have a lot of different facets, it really has that central theme. Cool. So you are a film producer, like I just said. Uh, you are like a, I mean, we've talked a little bit prior to the show. You are like a strictly numbers guy, it seems, obviously with finance and whatnot. Um, talk to me like the beginning, like how did... How did you, how did filmmaking and doing what you do with the process, like land in your lap, like as detailed as you can be? Yeah. Uh, so 
my career for most of it was more in the management consulting side, doing financial and operational management um, with a lot of startups, the venture capital, private equity world. Uh, and that had a lot of exposure to different tech, which then got me into a lot of educational technology, which then got me exposure to video games, which then opened up some of the area into more expanded media. Um, into film was 2013-2014. An associate had put a few bucks into a vanity project, really wanted to see his name on the screen, asked me to look over the numbers, and I thought it was the absolute worst business I had ever seen. Um, filmmaking as a business just, it was ugly. But to then dig into it and see different areas, we kind of hack together a model that would work for us to do some investment into it. A lot of finishing funds on projects, um, projects that were in the can or had a good chunk of what was there moving in with some financing funds. And that's what we did for a couple of years, but we kept seeing a lot of the same problems with the productions that were coming to us. They were capitalized or they didn't have a good distribution or monetization plan for when they were done. Or it was just being artists without someone playing or the phrase we used to use was the adult in the room. How are you actually going to get it across the finish line, get it out to distributors, get money back? So not only something of it, but that your project is actually going to be seen by someone outside your friends and family. So in 2017, we moved into the full-on production side of it. First one we did was um, Blackwater with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren. Um, shot that down in Mobile, Alabama. And then after that, and we kind of had our taste into what putting together a full feature theatrical release would be, we started focusing more on a lot of the made-for-TV type movies um smaller they were quicker turnaround and we were really kind of able to hone what was needed to go from concept through to distribution and recoupment of our investment and really be able to kind of systematize what was there and that's what we've been doing i think i think we filmed number 34 in february so we've done a fair amount in the last few years uh yeah um, <laughs> I've filmed zero and, <laughs> but, but I'm also not like a, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in your field really, but what well, kind of, am. but, um, I want to touch on, yeah, a lot of the films that, uh, your company's put out in a little bit. Um, but you just mentioned you did some, you know, behind the scenes work in like video games. And I mean, I just kind of, cause I got like a little, bit of a listener base on this show that are huge gamers. Like what, what, what was just kind of go into detail, like what was that all about? Um, a lot of that branched off of educational technology. So I helped stand up a startup in the ed tech field that had a lot of gamification in it. We were dealing with a lot of the studios out of Austin, a little bit of the offshore studios to put together the game components, the game mechanics of it. After that, I worked with a couple of smaller studios. Um, here in the DC area, which actually has a very active video game um, community, really? as I well didn't as know that. Uh, Bethesda Studios is Bethesda, Maryland, um, and so oh. Bethesda Zenimax is all here. And there's been a couple of splinter companies as well. So 
We, we actually are very active and actually very active right now in augmented reality and virtual reality development. Baltimore, I think, is the fourth largest hub for it in the United States. Austin, San Francisco, I think it's Boston, and then Baltimore. Um, so in that area, helped a couple of other startups with it. So it's an interesting and fun area to play with. And as a somebody who grew up in the video game era, I love that stuff. So being able to be involved and see kind of the workings of it was very enjoyable. So you grew up in the video game era. I just, I want to go back and get some nostalgia out of this. Like it, it, were you like, what did you play when you were younger? Well, out of my game room, I have my original Atari 2600. I have my original NES. I was a little too young for the Commodore 64, but I did play on them with some of my neighbors, but it was definitely a little before my time. Um, Zelda was my first real love on the consoles. On PCs, it was all of the Sierra games, the King's Quest, the Space Quests. I still have a shelf with all of those in their original boxes because I think they're phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Awesome. No, that, that's cool. I mean, I, I grew up in the N64 era and... I think the first one, well, I mean, I actually, no, I grew up in the Sega Genesis era and yeah, I was the Mortal Kombat's and the games I shouldn't have been playing at six years old. So I I was the drinking games on GoldenEye on the N64 in college. (laughs) That was how I spent one too many nights when I should have been studying. I want to, all right, to branch off that real quick, I think the last time I played GoldenEye was about five years ago and I don't know if it's just the adjustments of like a PlayStation controller now and how it feels in your hand. I picked up an N64 controller for the first time in maybe 15 years when I played GoldenEye again. And I, I don't know if it's something with the controller with my hands and it being so glitchy and whatnot. It just didn't really add up like it once did. But I, I remember a lot of sleepovers when I was younger, just GoldenEye all night that, I mean, I wasn't drinking at nine years old but (laughs) um yeah no that is that is just that's an iconic piece of 90s pop culture but um moving along here um you being a producer on a crap ton of films over the last decade pretty much uh you've worked with you know probably a lot of different multiple directors and you know i've you know i've made a few things as a director and as a producer but like you know there's a lot of directors that are also trying to be producers or writer, director, producers, like talk to me about like working with directors. Like what, 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 what approach do you kind of come from? Um, for us, it really is a big focus on communication and that everyone comes out of it on a win-win. Um, Cause everyone has the same goal is to put out the best movie possible. But I think where a lot of people run into issues is they enter into those films and especially early stage directors who maybe haven't gone through think it's an adversarial relationship. They've heard the horror stories, producers basically trying to demand things, you know, counting dimes and all of that. And I mean, there is an inkling of truth to that. Director wants is just focused on the art of it and how visual it's going to look, the story it's telling, and that's their job. But from the production side, the producer side, it's making sure the film can get finished. And there, there are constraints. Um, even 
even if we were dealing with Disney's budget, there are constraints. How long do you have the talent for? What is actually physically capable? What is the cost of doing things? And I think in that understanding of what constraints you're working in, if those are laid out, you go very clear, open, honest communication, you can get better results because then the director is a part of the choices on where resources should be allocated, where they can be cut, and basically moving around. So we did one a few years ago now, director DP had lined, this was a small TV movie. Um, and they had this absolutely gorgeous shot lined up, tracking shot up to a crane opening up and showing a big crowd of people. And it was beautifully laid out and boarded and all of that. It was gonna be half the budget for the entire film. And it was, that is a beautiful shot. We understand the artistry of that. But if you do that, the entire rest of the film is just going to be single takes, two people talking. We can't afford that. But if you cut that, we can do all of those other things you want, all of these different areas. And when that conversation happens and you're laying out the logistical mechanics, the cost constraints, the time constraints that you're dealing with, it gives a sense of, and ownership on the decisions. And I think you'll get really creative solutions out of your directors, your DP, out of all of your creatives when they're part of the way to work around the constraints instead of just having the constraints laid upon them. One thing I've noticed, and I think when you popped up on my radar, um, you know, I looked into your work and everything. And next thing I knew you had like Dawn's Light Media had like four films streaming on Hulu or something. So I watched a few of them and this is just a little bit branching off of what you just said. Um, I've noticed that some of them are like a lot of not one location, but very minimal locations. And I'm seeing that as like kind of a, I actually think it's really cool. Um, I'm seeing that as kind of a trend with like films on the streaming platform. I don't know if it's COVID that did that. And I'm sure that does play a fact into it, but do you like try to strive to have films that are kind of those one to two or three location kind of movies? If we can. And uh, that's something I think COVID has definitely shifted a lot more people to that focus. But that that's one of those constraints that if we can put in place and if that can be something that's worked into the script early and that's part of the storytelling, it makes life easier because it frees up budget for other things. Not just that we're not running around and having to get a bunch of different locations, but it same, saves huge amounts of time on company moves. Because if we can set up shop at one place, then we're not having to move the entire crew and lose a half a day here, lose a full day there. So it allows us to be able to do more with what we have and more more of the resources go onto the screen instead of stuff that the audience is never going to say. So you're telling me you have no plans to direct or have a film with massive explosions going off in Times Square anytime soon? I, I, I mean, as wonderful <laughs> as that sounds, someone can get my $10 to go watch it in the movie theater. It's not going to be one that we do. Um, Again, I love to see it. I love the big Marvel, the big 
I mean, but, anyway, those are on soundstage, done on sound stages now anyway. No one... I love the idea of it. It's just when I look at how it's done and I'm like, they'll say those same effects, those same stories. There are other ways to tell them that are not as and not as spectacular, but that ends up working better for the type of films that we're putting out. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think. Yeah, the mar- the market feels like it's shifting towards these smaller films that are smaller in budget but still have a high concept, which I think is good for independent filmmakers, um, personally. But um, let I just want to jump into because I know I have a lot of independent filmmakers that listen to this that are trying to get something made or talk to guys like you, and I'm not saying they should flood your email with pitch decks. <laughs> Um, Cause I know that can be kind of annoying, <laughs> but like, regardless, like obviously like when a, a filmmaker is prepping a pitch deck or just some sort of packet to send to a guy like you or anybody else out there, like what do, what do you look for in a pitch deck? Oh, I think, especially if it's cold, it's not trying to get all the information across at once. I think that's a big mistake. People think that they've got the one shot. It's I'm going to send, the log line, the script, the pitch deck, maybe a d- demo. And it's just this massive amount of information. And even if there would be something good in there, that's the easiest thing in the world for me to hit. I, uh, I hit archive, not delete, because you never know when you want to go back. But it's still, it's not going to be looked through. Um, what I've always said when talking with newer filmmakers and even people I've worked with in the past, you've got 30 seconds of my attention in that email. And I think this is true of any producer. It's if we don't just hit delete immediately, or if somebody doesn't just hit delete, they've got what they're going to see on the screen when it opens up. You've got about 30 seconds. They're going to read the four or five lines. You got to grab the attention with that. What about you? What about your story? What about your script? Someone want to learn more. And that's not just shoving a log line down their throat, but what is it about you? What's the connection? Why are you reaching out to me and not somebody else? So that four or five sentences, I mean, get that tight. You've got that 30 seconds to then get them to send back and say, yeah, send me a log line. Yeah, send me, you know, the three minute video because that 30 seconds will buy you a three or five minutes of attention. And then after that three or five minutes, then if they still want more, then they'll put the time into your pitch deck. Then they'll put the time into digging a little bit more. So I think that's the biggest advice is don't look at it as I need to get it all across at once. It's not, you know, you're not batting for the fences. Get on base with that first reach out. Just get them enough to respond back, to show some level of interest. And that in some cases is not this big high level thing it's why are you reaching out to me what about you or your script or your story is special and why do i want to hear more about it solid baseball analogy right there get on base first yeah because no i i just i and honestly i i also believe in maybe creating relationships organically with people who you're trying to get stuff in front of like you know i, I can see it on people's faces when i meet them you know they just they have that script in their back pocket and they're just like, just read it, read it. Here it is. And it's like, eh. I've seen it happen. It looks ugly. It looks like, you know, a guy getting turned down by a, on a, by a woman for a date. It's, <laughs> it's never pretty, 
Um, I, I think you hit on right there. It works really well because if you get on base, even if you're then, it never goes further than that. I have your idea, your log yeah. line, your script in my head. And even if it's not for me, six months down the line, I may know somebody that's looking for yeah. that or something that would work. And I then I'm willing to reach back out and go, hey, I, I think I know someone I can put you in contact with. But if it just went into the trash bin, you're you're not that knowledge. You haven't created that relationship that someone is going to reach back out. That's so true because you see people get rejected, and you know it's you know they they want to get frustrated. They want to they huff and puff. About, I've seen it happen. I mean, like I've you know five years ago, maybe I was guilty of it too. But like, I mean, I just got rejected for something last week, and you know all I did was go, well, thank you very much for the opportunity, and if something comes up down the line, let me know because. Just like that, you know, you might say no, but something might open up in the market that you're aware of or some company that you're aware of. And, you know, always just for any filmmakers out there, take rejection, just be easy on yourself and be easy on the person who rejects you also. That's my rant for this show. <laughs> Back to questions. Uh, <laughs> um, where's my questions here? Uh, so, your company has a handful of films, like you said, that have already, you know, hit streamers, hit, you know, I think did did you said, I think you told me you had some up on the Lifetime channel for that market. Yeah, we've done theatrical, Lifetime, Netflix, Hulu, HBO. So we've covered most of them at one point or another. Wow. Um, well, just talk to me since that means like there's probably a lot going on. Just talk to me what it's like having multiple projects going on at once. I know you touched on it a little bit early on, but if there's anything you can expand on, just like the process your team does with having five, six movies going on at once. Yeah, well, I, I think that ties actually really well back into the rejection comment in that it's not five or six. It may be five or six that are in some stage of production, but then there's another 15 or 20 that are sitting in the void that, you know, maybe started, never went anywhere. I mean, a lot of those end up in the trash bin or I've got an entire shelf of projects that started, went somewhere, never got anywhere. We had a bunch of publicity a couple of years ago doing a project with Wesley Snipes that then fizzled and died. And I'm going to ask happened. you about that in just yeah. a minute. So <laughs> keep, but keep going. And, and it, it happens. And that's just, you know, part of what's going on. And I think that's, having a lot of having a lot of balls in the air or a lot of irons in the fire or whatever adage you want to use it, it gives more opportunity so for us it's having a lot going on um making sure everything is organized with it and then properly delegating who is handling what portion of it so that's where my involvement my partner's involvement is very heavy in the packaging and very heavy afterwards in the distribution. But we have a post house we've used for, I think, 30 of our films. And they're wonderful. When it goes to them, we trust them. We know what they're going to be doing. Um, so we're not having to micromanage our teams for the physical production. We've worked with a lot of the same people for a half dozen, a dozen films. And that when they go into it, we can trust that they'll be able to do their jobs and they'll be able to and will make the right decisions so that you're empowering people to do what they do best. 
And I think that's where a lot of a lot of people like use the term writer, director, producer. When people come in and it's a, I'm a writer, producer, actor, writer, musician, songwriter, this whole thing, they want to do every phase of it, which when you first start out your first film, maybe you have to, but as you grow and as we've grown, it's, you have to bring on the people who can do the job. And in a lot of cases, the people you're bringing on can do the job better than you could do if you wanted to and trusting them to work their magic. So I think that's kind of the key in growth in the multiple projects is delegate where you can, put your effort where it's needed, but then trust that the people you're bringing on and working with are going to be able to do what they say they're going to do. You hire people for a reason. That's kind of the phrase I heard, which sounds generic, but it, it's true. Like you, you took interest in what they're good at because maybe you're a little lackluster in it. So that's why they're on your team. Anywho, um, so you've done some movies with, like you said, Jean-Claude Van Damme, which I could pick your brain about, but that's a different episode. Uh, <laughs> I, I, like I said, I grew up in the 90s watching movies that maybe I shouldn't have because of my older brother. I think I've seen every Van Damme movie, whether it was theatrical or straight to video. Um, Dolph Lundgren, uh, Kelsey Grammer, uh, Thomas J. Like once I started putting everything together with you and your company and I'm like, wow, this is, this is some uh, top, top tier um, figures or talent in movies. I'm not trying to say there, but <laughs> tell me what it's like, like bringing these name actors on you know, to a movie and just the, the the process you go through and working with them, if you've worked with them directly or just been talking to their agents and whatnot, what's that like? Uh, agents are agents, no matter who or what size um, the talent is. Um, they're all doing the same thing. And that's working with some other producers, directors always want to take, again, the agent as the enemy um, and that they're a gatekeeper and they're going to not make it happen. And, I mean, I can tell horror stories and I, I can. They're paid to say things. no a lot. So, well, that, but that's what it is. When you understand that's their job yeah. is to say no. It's their job to get the most money for their client. And if you see that, you respect that that's what they're trying to do. It's then easier to work with them. You can go in and this is the project we're doing, this is the amount of time, this is the amount we have on the budget. This is where we can work with you. This is where we can't. And you can normally come to that agreement. But if that's one where you go in combative and you take them saying no, or you take anything they say is just, it's too much, it's too out there, it, it sours the relationship before it starts. If you just understand that it's their job to get the most for their clients, and it's your job as a producer to, again, win-win, everybody's happy. This is what you have set in the budget for them. If they're willing to work for that, that's phenomenal. If not, it was great talking with you. Maybe on a future project, we can make something work. And that's, again, been with everybody, whether we're talking about somebody who's just gotten representation for the first time or we're talking with someone like a Van Damme's agent or someone over at CAA with like Snipes' agent with any of them, it, it's always the same job. You understand that, you respect that, and it makes it work a lot easier. Okay, perfect. I want to touch on Wesley Snipes, that project <laughs> in just a minute, because it was, 
when I was doing research on you and I read the, the article, um, I thought it was really interesting. But before I get there, you and last time you and I talked, um, I think I mentioned the word formula and you kind of perked up and liked it a little bit. And like, it seems like you have a formula with just about everything you do. Um, now, films, there's films out there that get criticized for being too formulaic. Um, lifetime Christmas movies are, you know, it's going to happen, but yet you still watch them all the time. Um, just talk to me about, you know, formula, you know, the three act structure formula movie versus any other art house thing. And, you know, do you seem to flock more to having a formula in the films you produce or not? Yeah. Um, formulas become formulas for a reason. And that's, Especially if they work. Well, that's the thing. They, if it's become a formula that we talk about, like the three-act structure, like the 15-beat sheet, like any of these things, they are known because they work. And if you want to go in and you want to break them, you want to move away from that, you need to understand the formula first on why and where you can break it. I think it was Picasso who said you need to learn the rules like a master so you can break them like an artist. If you don't understand the formula of why a three-act structure works, and you're just going to go to a four-act or five-act or whatever you're going to go to, well, what is the rationale? What is the reason why that is a better structure for your story than what everybody else uses? And I'm not saying that it can't exist, that the reason isn't there, but what is your rationale? So, formulas or we switch it a little bit we call them recipes instead of formulas because i think the word formula has a lot of connotations depending on who you talk to like the word content there's certain things that people dig their teeth into they hate the word so we don't use the word formula we use the word recipe (laughs) lifetime movies there is a recipe that makes them work there are certain components that make it work but just like a recipe in cooking, you can change it a little. So if I'm looking at how to make something and I look up a recipe online after I read through the 87 paragraphs of the person's life story and I see what they're saying to do, they, they may say use one clove of garlic. And I'm like, that's silly. You should use like six. Well, I follow the rest of the recipe, but I know that my tastes lend a certain way I tweak the recipe to make it work better for me. So when we're making a lot of these movies, we have a recipe. We know what works. The idea of limited locations, the idea of the way we cast or a couple of the roles we want into it with the lifetime ones, who our leads are, where the trouble is, where we're going to have certain beats, where we're going to add some of the tension. It's part of a recipe But when it goes to script, when it goes to the director, it's not, you have to do this exactly, change some of it. But why are you changing it? Have a reason beyond it. Don't just change it to be different, change it to be better. And I think that's where a lot of people, especially again, younger filmmakers, even worse, the people right out of film school who have a lot of the theory in it, is they want to break the mold without exactly understanding why the mold works so well. I think once you understand why it works, you can then break it 
and you can do great things outside of it, but you need to know why. All right. I was going to say something about Lifetime Christmas movies because, uh, I mean, I watched a few with my wife over the holidays, but like I, 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 I've always noticed, and I, I, I really can't give an example, but I feel like still in some of the, these formulaic Lifetime holiday films, there is still something in it, whether it's plot, whether it's theme, tone, I don't know, that is a little bit of a twist away from the typical formula. And there is something different in, you know, a few of them here and there. And so, I mean, I don't, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, I don't get why formula gets a bad rap either. Sometimes I think there is a lot of people that out of the gate, out of film school, want to go make something that, you know, wins Sundance. And next thing I know, there's these, there, you know, they get the immediate, you know, gimmick, you know, the people gimmicking their films and whatnot. And I, I think it's actually good for, I think it's actually good for filmmakers starting out early on to follow formulas actually. So well, I think that's where you learn yeah. what's there, what works. And a lot of the ones that we talk about that break the mold, the flukes, they're, they're the weird mutations. It's there. They could happen. It could work, but 99 times out of a hundred, it's going to fail. The, Blair Witch found footage, all of that. 99 times out of 100, you do something like that, it's not going to work. Or that actually probably 999,000 times it's not going to work. One time, it breaks the mold. One of the most profitable films of mm -hmm. all time. But that's not going to happen every time you break the mold. A lot of the times, it's just going to be bad. That was such a genius move in the late 90s for that film. Like... I remember thinking that was sorry to go off on the sidebar here, but like that was for the like my siblings were like teenagers during that and they thought it was real. I thought it was real. This was like social media marketing for a movie before social media was even around. That was well, to me, that's my big argument on it. It wasn't the film, it was everything yeah. around the film. The film itself, if you go back and watch it, is nothing. It and not saying anything disparaging to them and all that. But today, if you release that, there's nothing special there. Exactly. It was everything about it. It was people doubting what was real, what wasn't. It was all of the buzz that was created in that early stages of the world going viral. I mean, I think, you know, Tiger King was a year ago, two years ago. Now everyone's talking about it. So people want to watch it. That's what the Blair Witch did, except we had never had something like that before where everybody's talking about it. So you have to go watch it. Yeah. Tiger King was perfect for early days of coronavirus lockdown. I'm, I'm guilty of that. See what sitting down and watching all that too. <laughs> and like, I like they, they dropped, they just dropped the second season and I'm not, I heard it sucked. I didn't really care to watch it. I'm not, I'm not interested anymore. Go back and revisit those characters. Yeah. It, it's kind of like, it's all about, you know, timing too with dropping films and, you know, when is it right? When is it not right? That could determine if the thing just fizzles away or, or if it blows up. Um, anywho, I wish I could say more about that, but I'm starting to get like what's called dad brain and like, I'm forgetting stuff already. Um, so moving on a couple, couple more questions here. Um, like, you know, 
let's say, you know, when you get a script and you're starting, you're going into the development phases, you're, you got something in front of you that you like. Um, when you're reading it, are you seeing the, the, are you seeing the film, like the vision of it, or are you seeing like the financial side of it first? If that, if that makes any sense. I do my best to first read it from the, what is it going to look like on screen without the cost side of it? I, I do my best to read it as the story, as the writer intended on what it's going to look like. Um, not always possible. There are sometimes glaring things that jump out. This isn't going to work or whatever, but do my best on the first run through. Then after that, it's looking at, well, how many characters are we going to have? How long are we going to need them for filming? How many locations? Are there any scenes? Are there any key parts of the story that are just cost prohibitive? If they are cost prohibitive, can they be removed and the story still works or can they be replaced? And then it's digging into that area on how you would be able to make it work um, at different budget ranges and, you know, kind of where your MVP, your minimum viable product would be. And then kind of tweak with around there where, where you could go with it. Okay. So now to, uh, Teased it a couple times. Uh, you almost made a movie with Wesley Snipes, and there, I think it was 2019. Forbes did a write-up about your the the film was going to be like the first carbon footprint um, Hollywood film production. Uh, I mean, I read the article, but if you just want to expand on what you were trying to go for there, and I think you're still trying to maybe get that up and running. Yeah. So. Um- so part of when I was back to working management consulting in tech, I did a lot with the green industries. Um, a lot of the eco business, alternative fuels, um, electric vehicles, all that. So it's always been very near and dear to my heart. And we've constantly been pushing in our productions as much as possible to incorporate where we can better ecological practices. Um, I'm always trying to use the right words on this because I'm as far from a tree hugger granola person as can be. But I think in a lot of places, if you can do it, why not? It benefits everyone. It benefits the world. And in a lot of cases, I I think it can be done in a very efficient and cost savings way. So we were fortunate enough, the project Hayline, um, with Wesley Snipes, we met with him and it was something that he's interested in as well. A lot of the new technologies on what is coming into the world um, does a lot or is interested in a lot of those eco-friendly areas, a lot of the tokenization. And we were looking at where we could do this production, where we could go outside of it just being a film. And kind of the big focus for us was making that traditional action movie that popcorn movie that nobody is going to see anything different on screen but be able to come in and have it truly be carbon neutral um go in and do everything possible um to basically reduce our footprint as low as possible if not actually get past zero and be giving back there were certain areas we were going to have to do things like buy carbon offsets we weren't going to be able to, you know, not fly people places and some of those things, but working with 
American University, um, their head of sustainability there. We were structuring how we were going to record and track all of our details to actually be able to have evidence that this film was not ecologically damaging, that it was at a net zero or a net give back um, as part of it. And that for us in that particular project, chunks of it were Wesley Snipes being on board with it um, and wanting there because it really is all the tone from the top. You can't ask your crew, you can't ask everyone involved to go to extra steps to do things in an ecologically friendly way, to put in the little bit of extra effort to get there if they see that the main talent, that the producers, that everyone else doesn't care. Then it just seems more of theater, um, as some show, some say, that isn't then worth it. But having him on board and us willing to go through, we really saw it as a possibility to get it done. Um, good and bad for us, we were looking to put that together right when um, he started having a big resurgence. Um, first, it was the Netflix movie. I'm blanking on the name right now. Then coming to America too. And Dolomite. Dolomite. Yeah, Mer- that was an awesome movie. Yeah. Well, it was, we were going to film and then Dolomite blocked him off for a few months that fall. Then he went into coming to America too. Then we went into coronavirus. And so that's one of those films that's still sitting on the shelf, hoping that one day it can be pulled back off. But we'll see where it goes. No, good. He's... He's um he's having quite a renaissance, so that could really be good for you and your brand and whatnot. If the, if it gets back off the ground, I hope it does too. That'd be like like you said, you're not like you know tree hugging granola head. I, I'm not either, but like I I definitely have someone who I hate to use those words too, but like I'm definitely for someone. Those, who, I love the idea behind it, yeah. just not some of what's there. And again, we we would love to do that project. Snipes and his family are lovely, got a chance to spend some time with him as we were putting it together. I think it would be phenomenal, not just for the talent he brings on screen, but again, some of the what you're willing to do behind the scenes um, in the production. And that's with a lot of the bigger name talent we always love to find. I mean, it, if they want to show up and just their lines, do their thing and go home. That's great. And I'm not going to fault anyone for that. It, it's a job and a payday. But when you get people who want to be involved more and where else can you bring benefit, that, that's just phenomenal to work with. Awesome. Um, so moving ahead, kind of bring things in for a landing here. Um, you know, what do you think, what's your opinion on, because I feel like there's going to be, I feel like there has been a gold rush of low budget films out there and like people raising capital or trying to raise capital. What do you think from your perspective is the climate now of filmmakers trying to raise capital and whatnot? Raising capital has always been difficult, always will be difficult. Um, And that's, I feel I need to lead with that because it's, it's you're going to have a lot of no's a lot of things film has been a bad investment for a lot of people um film in a lot of ways can be a bad investment there's a lot of risks associated with it 
Um, and especially now with a lot of the coronavirus that's still out there, a lot of people are fearful of production risk in a way that they weren't before. So there's a lot of those things you need to look at. I think one of the biggest things when people early on, um, either early on in their careers or first, you know, trying to get out with their first raises is and say have realistic budgets and have realistic expectations on what the film is going to be worth. Um, hearing people come in and, oh, it's a great, it's my first script, and I think we can shoot it for only $12 million. But I, that's wonderful. What can't you shoot for $12 million? Where did that $12 million come from? Why is that the number? And a lot of times they, they don't have the support behind that. And you for as much as people don't like, you can do a phenomenal movie for a half million. You, you can, it can make it on Netflix. It can go anywhere for that. Actually, probably even for about a quarter million, if you know what you're doing, you can get it done. Um, Start with reasonable numbers on coming in and have reasonable expectations on where it's going to be. Coming back to things like the Blair Witch Project, is if you put in your pitch deck, your comparables as the Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity, I, I'm kind of laughing because you chose two of the most profitable films in the history of film. Are those really comparables? I, I guess you may be in that low budget horror realm, but do you think you're going to be groundbreaking in that way? How have other films of your size, your caliber been selling in the last year, in the last two years. So be realistic on it. Because if you tell me that you're going to make a $250,000 movie and you're going to get a million gross from it, that's still a good investment. It's not a hundred million, but, you know, have those realistic numbers behind it. And then have an idea on your putting out your risk mitigation. What guarantees can you put in place or where can you minimize the risk to your investor? And I think the single biggest thing you can do with that is have what we used to call in the world pain money. You're in for a chunk of the budget. Your own personal savings are in there. If this thing fails, you're hurting. So show that your interests are aligned with them directly and you're not asking them to put their money where you haven't already put yours. All right. A lot of tidbits here on this episode. Um, so real quick, I always say real quick and it turns into like a five ten minute <laughs> thing. That's like the thing on the show, but well, this should be quick, but whatever you, I mean, with your production company churning out, you know, films left and right, uh, this is kind of a two-parter, but like, does, do you think Dawn's light media, are you guys going to stick in the feature world? Or are you going to maybe branch out into I don't know. Like, I feel like there's, I know we were talking about, you know, grinning our teeth at the word content, but like any short form stuff. Cause I, you know, I, I've, I'm seeing like Disney do stuff like that and whatnot on their streaming platforms. But like, are you, is basically what I'm saying is, is there anything besides feature films you guys want to get your hands into? If you can nothing say, or not. well, no, nothing we're gunning for directly. A couple of years ago, before the pandemic, we were looking at moving more into some television and other content of that area. And it just didn't work for us at the time. It was more, more in line for us to continue expanding the feature production. Um, at this point, 
I don't see a reason why we would deviate, go into television or go into other areas, but with the right opportunity, we definitely would. Um, we're very opportunistic in that. If we see something that we think is going to work and with it being a changing market, I don't know what things are going to look like in three years. So there may be new avenues that are worth exploring. And with that being said, like whatever you can and can't tell me or the listeners to the show, uh, what's the future for your, your company? Like, what are you guys working on right now? I mean, I know you guys are shooting like all over the country. I see on the Instagram page, you guys are in Boston a lot. I know you're from the area, you know, I'm from up there too, uh, down in new Orleans. I think there was a production going on. So like, well, what's, what's coming down the pipeline, whatever you can tell me. Uh, well, a lot. We're hoping 2022 is very similar to our 2021. Um, the last 15, 16 months, we've shot 14 features. So we're hoping to do about the same in the next 18 months um, stateside. We're looking in 2022, God willing, coronavirus, Omicron, all that stuff, to have our first outside the U.S. or, well, technically we did one in Canada in the past, but we're looking at shooting one down in South America and one in Eastern Europe. So we expand our footprint internationally. All right. Um, thank you for coming on and like giving us a crash course into, you know, film finance and whatnot and just the, the business side of all this. Cause you know, I think like, you know, and I, I know a lot of aspiring they're not even aspiring they're they're making stuff they're just not making stuff at this level really but you know i know a lot of filmmakers that aren't really at least knowledgeable of the business side of um filmmaking and i think it's important even if that's not like your go-to title just at least being aware of this kind of stuff because you need to go out and raise money for these damn things <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you don't need to. I mean, you can just, you know, pick up your iPhone and just keep doing that the rest of your life. But if you really want to do something like that, you know, stuff like this is important. So, uh, Jason, is there anywhere on the internet people can stalk you, follow you, whatever's comfortable? Um, yeah. if people, you know, just want to track you down and follow whatever you're doing, is there a place? Um, basically across all social media is my name, Jason Cherubini. Um, I put up a bunch of blogs and stuff on Medium and LinkedIn related to thing, the really exciting things like film finance and tax credit financing and all of that stuff. So if people really want to get into the nuts and bolts of the bean counting, it's all there. All right, cool. And um, that's it for this episode today. Thank you guys for listening. Subscribe, leave a comment and, you know, keep this show from going out into the abyss of the Internet. Uh, take care, everybody. Bye.